I'm Michael Laurie, and you're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Hello and welcome to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. I'm your host, Gareth Hanna, and with me are your regular reporting duo, Jonathan Bradley. Season's greetings. And Alan McKenna. Hey, guys. One very festive, thought we were going to get two, but I wasn't. I forgot it was coming up to Christmas. Dinner. I've got a festive t-shirt on, if you that do. counts. I know people yeah. can't see that, but I yeah. I'm absolutely the old one out there. I'm wearing saddle socks, so. Oh, oh, so am I. So the Heineken Cup pool stages is now two-thirds of the way through, and Ulster are flying high. Top of the group, after back-to-back wins over Harlequins, things were a little more straightforward at the stoop than they were at Kingspan, so we look back on Ulster's bonus point success and the impact once again, of a certain John Cooney. There's the state of the quarterfinal race to assess, and we'll also turn our eyes back to Pro 14 matters with the festive Interpros due to begin on Friday night. And Leinster after that, nine Ulster players will be off to meet up with Andy Farrell's first Ireland panel. So we'll look at the two new faces and a couple who didn't make it first, though. Ulster beat Harlequins. I forgot down, to write down the result, and I've also forgotten the result. But it was a bonus try success, I remember that. In the words of the BT Sport commentator, surely not Cooney again. It is! Two tries this week. That's taken his tally to seven for the season. So, Jonathan, has he moved now, officially, into favourite status for Ireland's number nine shirt? I think you have to say that he has, yeah, because Conor Murray obviously has a huge amount of credit in the bank. And Conor Murray is... I would say probably being judged to a different standard than everybody else because he's a two-time Lions tourist. He's been Ireland's preeminent scrum half for eight years. And in a way, people are probably looking at him in a way that they don't look at other players. But the flip side of that is that as much as I think Conor Murray's playing better than he's being given credit for, John Cooney is in a run of form that is rare. Like it's rare for somebody to be playing as well as he is. And I think that, you know, you talk about that balance between form and body of work. And John Cooney's form is now such that it has to negate the lack of a body of work at test level. You start him for Ireland? Yeah, I think I would. Because, as Johnny says, he is a form nine. And as I, I keep harping on about every week, you know, if Ireland have learned something from the World Cup, it's pick on form. So mm. I think if you're taking that into Andy Farrell's first selection as an Ireland coach... If it was next week, yeah, I think you have to start Cooney, especially if Sexton's not going to be there. Now, once the Six Nations rolls around, Sexton might be back. Mm. But I think whenever you don't have Sexton there, I think that's your opportunity to really look at what's sort of below the surface of that Murray and Sexton partnership. And I think that's looking at putting Cooney in at nine and maybe trying to see if you can form a secondary partnership mm. that could potentially even become the primary partnership. Now, we're talking very hypothetically here, but if you can create another mm. pairing that Ireland didn't have whenever Murray and Sexton were going through that rough patch that they kept persisting with, maybe they should have tried to solve. If you're able to create that now to potentially solve that problem, if it comes up again in the future... Well, then there you go, you, you've got that sorted. If you put Cooney and Ross Byrne in there, or if you put Cooney and Carberry in there, suddenly you've got an alternate solution to mm. Murray and Sexton if they go through yeah. that joint and form again. Pure and simply, yeah, I think I think you just got to go with the form guy. And yeah. right now, um, I'm going to steal what you said before we started recording, Johnny. I think Cooney's the form nine in world rugby. Like if you were having a world 15 at the moment... You'd have Cooney at scrum half. 
This is why we don't have planning meetings. You didn't say it, so I'm going to take it. How can you say John Cooney's the form number nine in the world? Well, they're not playing rugby in the Southern Hemisphere, for starters. <laughs> and he's been, the be- now, <laughs> he's been the best player in the Champions Cup so far. Which is... So you're crowning him now. Yep, this best is it. number nine in the world. Yep, Lions number nine, 2021. <laughs> <laughs> even if you, even Lions if captain, 2021. No, <laughs> the not campaign to, starts here. <laughs> not to get too hyped, but even if you took the nines from the Southern Hemisphere, were, were any of them in better form than Cooney during the World Cup? Aaron Smith played pretty well, to be fair to him. Faf de Klerk, obviously. I don't know if John Cooney's ever good at royalty in a pair of uh, South Africa flag budgie smugglers, but... Um, <laughs> but if, if you put Faf de Klerk... I, I would say not. I'm going to guess no. <laughs> if you put Faf de Klerk into the mix, though, then surely he's the Form 9 in the Northern Hemisphere because he plays for Sale. I don't think he's been as good at, um, in the Champions Cup. Obviously, Sale haven't been gone as well, and he's probably having a bit of a World Cup hangover, whereas John Cooney's having a different type of reaction to his own World Cup. Absolutely. How close is he now? We're doing, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have taken part, we're doing polls on the website to decide Ulster Rugby's team of the decade. We're almost through it, but voting will be open until for around about another week. So make sure you get on the website and uh, have your say for absolutely won't be open for another week. Oh no. Oh, we're a week ahead of ourselves. Two days. Yeah, for another two days. Do it very quickly. So, Joan Gurney, as a bit of a spoiler, unless something changes dramatically in the next two days, is nowhere near displacing Ryan Pina for a place on that lineup. But how close, Adam, have his last few performances been to Ryan Pina? I'd say his last few performances have been very close to peak Pina. I mean, you think about Pinar's best games, you know, that game in, in Leicester is obviously the one that stands out, and obviously it's in it was in Europe as well, which makes it all the more comparable. But Pinar, at his best, dominated games for Ulster. You know, he was effortless, he glided around the pitch, he was at rocks before they'd even formed, practically, and he added the kicks as well. And John Cooney's come in, and... Right now he's doing exactly the same thing. He just seems to know where the play is going to be. He just seems to know where to be at all times. He's kicking the goals. That try he scored against Harlequins where the ball kind of squirts out the back of the ruck and he just has the vision and the ability to just stab that through. He's the first guy to it. The breaks go for him. I mean, if, if you're comparing Cooney's form right now to Ruben Pienaar, it's very similar. Two completely different players in what they bring to the team. Cooney scores more tries than Pienaar, but Pienaar maybe had that just bit more of a, a gravitas and a calming presence mm-hmm. maybe in, in the back line. But I'd say in terms of the two compared at their peak, I think they're probably not too far off each other at the moment. Which is kind of crazy. Imagine when Pienaar had left, if we knew, if we could see, like well, a couple of years down the line, not even what was coming. Maybe everybody wouldn't have been all that upset about Ryan Painter leaving. David the Sephora sitting there rubbing his hands, <laughs> yeah. thinking, "Ah, oh, I got that one right, boys." <laughs> what about that second try? The little kick through. Like the first time I watched it back, I was like, "When did he kick it?" He like it all happened so quickly. He's like, "You nearly missed him kicking it." And it was yeah. pretty special. It almost wasn't as good as you originally thought, though, because. I think watching the replay for like a fourth time or something, you realise that it was actually some it was actually somebody else's boot had knocked it was through it? in the first place. I didn't even see that. Yeah, well, no, is, it, is, it not, is it not someone's boot sort of knocks it out the back of the ruck and then Cooney kicks it on further? Yeah, so you're still giving it to him. Oh no, it's still a great piece of footballing skill. But originally, having not seen the replay, you just looked up. He was at the base of the ruck, 
and then it looked like he'd kicked it through himself mm. and then kicked it again. So like, uh, yeah, right. because without having the benefit of the replay, originally I wrote about uh, okay, how his right. second so try was better than the first, when really the first was actually one of Ulster's best tries in a very long time. Because of the teamwork. Because of the teamwork. Because of the, the impact of plenty of players, but including Jacob Stockton. I thought Jacob had one of his best games this season, and I think moving him to fullback really has been a real masterstroke from Ulster because he's getting his hands on the ball. He's not scoring tries again yet, but the fact that he's getting his hands on the ball, he's getting more involvement in the game. Like he talked about, he's working out how to be impactful on a game without actually scoring, which is something that he probably has had to learn, but has been masked by the fact he's been scoring a lot of tries. He was much better aerially than he has been in other games. He had a couple good involvement involvements with ball in hand and then of course he's part of that brilliant try in the first half you know he's he's running the support line on Burns and then he gives the pass to Fattis at the perfect time I thought Ulster did everything perfectly because he had the perfect play to get Burns through the gap you had Luke Marshall checking Francis Saeli just a little bit not enough for it to be obstruction but enough to put him sort of off his line to get back to tackle Burns timing the offload perfectly to Stockdale. Stockdale timing the pass perfectly to Fattis. Fattis cutting back inside, even though he probably could have had a go for it down the outside. Yeah. And then Cooney running support line on the inside. Like I think that's possibly one of the best tries that Ulster have scored. We're doing our poll of the best team of the last decade. If, if you're doing a poll of the best try of the last decade, that's probably right up there in terms of the execution because I think they got it mm. spot on. But going back to Stockdale perspective, we've been talking about him, how he hasn't been in the best run of form during the World Cup since he came back from the World Cup. He's still waiting for that try. But I think Friday night was another big step in the right direction for him getting back to the levels that he wants to be at. The more he graphs away, just doing things right apart from scoring tries then the tries will eventually come and then you know you can't really ask for much more from mm-hmm. him best try of the decade i'm i'm, ta- I'm, ta- I'm talking about- against glasgow was probably the better try trimby's against bath was in this decade andy warwick's first try for ulster was in this decade do you have a good memory for these things but it was it's certainly the best try this season at a conservative estimate like i don't remember too many ulster tries that have sort of watched back and been like as you say, everything about it was perfect. No, it's a, it's a crack and team move, and I think the important part of it as well was going for it because mm. they were inside their own 22. Now, it's a great attacking yeah. position because you're lined up essentially with the whole field in front of you. So, you know, it, it's very much a training ground play because you're mm. starting from left and going to right. And then, in a way, it's a good... <laughs> It's not a good position to be if you mess it up because you're so close to your own posts. Yeah. But in a way, you've got so much space because you have all of the field this side and all of the field in front of you where Harlequins have to defend, mm. so they're quite spread out. I think the ambition to go for it is a really important part of it as well. John Cooney alluded to it afterwards that they actually changed the play because they'd thought about maybe being more conservative. And then you score and the whole complexion of the game changes because Ulster dominated the territory and the possession throughout that opening half hour but it only scored three points and then all of a sudden it's three each mm-hmm. Marty Moore's gone off sick and the balance of momentum feels like it's shifting Harlequins are on the attack John Cooney who else forces the scrum by knocking the ball out of the Harlequins winger's hands and then they go up 10-3 and then you know you have the other big momentum swing in the game which was John Cooney and his 
try saving tackle on Chisholm yeah. and then it's not long after that that Luke Marshall scores and you just have those little moments that really swung a game that was dominated by Ulster but tight on the scoreboard in the first 40 minutes to what is a game where you're chasing a bonus point in the last couple of minutes and ultimately getting a bonus point but th- that all harks back to what Dan had been saying mentality wise mm-hmm. and the changes in Ulster recently doesn't it and like those fine margins and those key moments are where Ulster now excel there's a huge shift in mentality I think from last week to this week um, where you look at the head-to-heads in previous years because Ulster have done well in the head-to-heads really going back to those Toulouse games it almost felt like they'd climbed the mountain in the first week in those in the Toulouse ones fair enough they were at home but they beat Toulouse and then realised that they probably realised that Toulouse weren't very good Mm -hmm. in that home game so the away game seemed easier the away game against Harlequins in the stoop where they won in the snow. Then they were coming back home. The Scarlet's game where they won away in bonus point and clung on. Then there's a mentality to that where you just have to be at the same level the next week and you'll get the result that you want. Whereas I think very much this week they had to be better and they had to go up a step and they hadn't done the hard work Mm -hmm. yet and they made a much easier job of it in the second week than the first week. I know Harlequins were much changed, but I think there was an impressive mentality because it was almost business as usual. I didn't think like it was overly celebratory. Mm -hmm. I thought it was basically just, we've come in, we've got the job done, we're flying home. Yeah. And... We expect this. Yeah, that's us. This is the norm. That's that's possibly as dominant as I've seen Ulster for a long time. I mean, you look at that first half an hour against the Scarlets where you kind of just put that to one side because you think they're so distracted by all their Wales players being away and so decimated by all, all these guys not being available to them. But that, even though Harlequins had made so many changes, that was just a game where you felt like Ulster just had everything in control from minute one to minute 80. Mm-hmm. You know, besides, mm-hmm. besides the very brief moment where Harlequin scored in the second half, and that very brief moment towards the end of the first half where they got the penalty and nearly had that try to go ahead. But apart from that, Ulster just always seemed to play it right. I mean, the biggest thing for me was they learned from their mistakes from the previous week as well. You know, in the second half, they didn't try to chase the bonus point. They were very content with going to their kicking game, relying on Ludic, Fadis, Stockdale, chasing it down, putting Chisholm under pressure, putting Gonova under pressure, putting Ismail under pressure because he was... He was on by that point. So I think that's one of the big things that I take away from it. They were very, very good with their game plan. But at the same time, whenever they saw that opportunity in the first half, they said, well, let's throw the game plan out the window because we see an opportunity. Yeah. Position-wise, then, looking forward to the quarterfinals, we can all but look forward to the quarterfinals at this stage because Ulster are top of pool three with 17 points. That's, at this stage, eight points clear of what would be the eighth place in the quarterfinals to the third best runner-up. Uh, in the pools they're playing at home to Bath they're, they're going to get through the quarterfinals this stage it's not too much of a stretch to assume that is it? I think they probably have to get zero points or something there about <laughs> yeah. from the last two games which obviously with one of them being at home and them having lost whatever it is one of the last 21 home games or something like that against a Bath side that have nothing to play for it obviously shouldn't happen I think if they get one more win and that win happens to be against Bath as you would expect I think they're probably the sixth seed. It's it's not mathematically hundred yeah. percent yet, but as good as because you know the other teams aren't going to get, for instance, maximum points from a game where they're playing Racing. You would imagine something like that. You know, out of interest, if they do go through the sixth seed, have you worked out who you reckon they're going to play? At the minute, it would be Toulouse. 
which would be great from a, Toulouse, yeah. from, from, a, yeah, from a, everyone getting to go and have a everyone's weekend in Toulouse. Yeah. Fingers crossed for that. Brilliant. Do not win in Clermont, then, is what we're saying. Well, obviously, obviously, <laughs> Ulster's goal is going to be to top the group and get the home quarterfinal, one from chances of winning and also two from uh, the ever-important Moolah. But we can sit here, they're not going to say it, we can sit here and say that's fairly unrealistic. Not because Ulster are out of form or whatever, but teams don't go and win in Claremont. But it's a class opportunity when you think about where they normally are at this time of year, where you're already in a position where every game's a must win. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a game where you're going to have a crack in the best place in Europe to play rugby with a chance of booking what would be, what, a third home European knockout game ever. Yeah, It's brilliant, really, you know. it's What a, what a prospect for a rugby player, what a prospect for what's such a young squad to be able to go into that game and not be like if we get hockeyed here like everybody <laughs> else is then our European season's over and yeah. you know it's a luxury yeah are you saying Stad Marcel Michelin is a better place to play than Rodney Parade I've never been to Rodney Parade so I shouldn't make such sweeping assertions <laughs> I should say the best place to watch rugby that I've ever been to see <laughs> yeah, sorry that's more accurate I, th- I think what, just on that point of going there with without much expectation I think this side are starting to put a bit of expectation on themselves and I'm not saying that's a bad thing because expectation doesn't necessarily mean pressure but I think this side are a team who are starting to realise that they are on the right track because Mm -hmm. at the start of the season you still have those questions of uh, you know we, we did good things last year but what about second season syndrome you start you go out and you get hockeyed and uh Bloemfontein against the Cheetahs and all of a sudden you're starting to think oh maybe this is maybe this is what we're actually going to be like this season but then the wins start to build up they're now in a position where if they don't make the last eight they they have messed up you know if, if mm. Ulster don't make it into the quarterfinals from the position they're in now with Bath still to come then it's their fault and their fault alone that they don't make it to the last eight so I think there is now an expectation within the squad that they will be in the quarterfinals and that they want to be more than just quarterfinalists, they want to be home quarterfinalists mm-hmm. and they want something tangible to have and hold on to going through. Like I mean, Ulster are now in a position where if they won in Claremont with Bath in the last game, they could very easily be second seeds here mm-hmm. behind Leinster, which would have them home home going into the final. So there's more than just a home quarterfinal at stake here. There's a home semi-final at stake here if they can actually go and win in Claremont, which is which makes that game even more important. Mm. Especially because Ulster are so young in their development. Like this is only the second year of, of Dan McFarland and already we're talking about the possibility of a home semi-final. It's uh, exciting looking forward. I was thinking I mean, about that this morning actually. Like, you know, if we probably talked in pre-season about what represents progression. And they might get an away quarterfinal to one of the best teams in Europe and lose, which is what they did last year. Mm-hmm. But I think we can probably say that this is still progression just in the manner oh, of yeah. which they're qualified rather than mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. you know last year, which was all a bit uh, I was gonna say a bit squeaky bum time, but given the <laughs> points differential going into this weekend, obviously things have been tight and those margins are fine, but it feels like they've carried on from really the Scarlet's games last year. Mm-hmm and carried that momentum forward into this year in a way that they probably didn't have in those first two European rounds last year, you know? To me, that to me that's more the momentum, though. You know, I don't think you can carry momentum for an entire year. I think that's now just that winning culture that we Tell feel Leinster. like they've... 
Called the villain. I don't. This is this is the thing. You can carry through momentum for a certain amount of time, absolutely. But I think at some point momentum turns into who you are. I, I don't think momentum mm. is something that just carries on week after week after week. I think at some point momentum translates into your your identity. culture, your identity. So I, I don't think it's momentum anymore. I think Ulster have more than that. This is great. We're so positive now. Ulster's identity is born winners. Now, according to, do I challenge anybody to accuse us of being negative now? Maybe wait until knee after. jerk. Absolutely knee jerk. <laughs> I, did, I did not use the word born winners. <laughs> I did. I did. I threw it in. Well, maybe so, wait until after the game in the RDS. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the Ireland squad then, which uh, the Ireland stock take, if you would. The Ireland stock take. Sorry, of course, which meets up on Sunday and Monday. There are, as we said earlier, nine Ulster players in it. There was. The usual players, unsurprisingly, John Cooney, Ian Henderson, Jacob Stockdale, Will Addison, Rob Herring, Stuart McCluskey and Marty Moore. Then, rather less expected, I suppose. Well, not expected, but new faces. Billy Burns and Tom O'Toole got the call. Now, Billy Burns, of course, came over in the summer of 2018 and made it very clear that his ambition was to come over and play for Ireland, who he represents through his dad's mum, I think. Yeah, well, the dad's. (laughs) That would be his grandmother. I know, but it was just specifying between his mum or, you know, on which side, his paternal grandmother. So is this quicker than he than he would have expected, expected to get even at this stage or is this fairly, he would, have, he would have expected to be in the Ireland panel by this stage? I don't think he would have expected to be in the Ireland panel and he's been very sort of upfront about the fact that, you know, he's here to play for Ulster and he wants to succeed with Ulster and sort of alluded to things last week that, you know, had him, I suppose, just happy to be playing rugby and succeeding at Ulster. The Ireland thing, I think, will be a bonus. I also think it's important to note that Ireland aren't going to have a 45-man squad at any other point. You know, this is a wide gathering. Yes, it's nice to go down and get the tracksuit and be a part of it and, I suppose, experience that environment for the first time. And, like, having spoken to Tom O'Toole yesterday, like, I'd never... um, I never want to poo-poo the uh, value of such a call. Mm -hmm. But, you know... I don't think anyone in that panel will be getting ahead of themselves either, mm. you know, because essentially what we're talking is you're going down on Sunday, you're going to have some meetings, you'll have some very light training, and then on Monday, I think they're doing the Christmas charity gig. Andy Farrell's talking to the media. It's a very sort of brief window, an awful lot of ground will be covered, and, you know, the real squad will be after the after mm. round six of Europe when we're looking ahead to the Six Nations in two weeks' time or three weeks' time rather than. Yeah. yeah, two weeks' time rather than seven weeks' time, you know. So what was Tom O'Toole saying about it? Bouncing off the walls. Like, he was so excited. Good. Johnny rubbishes it a day later. I, I exactly made the point that I was not rubbishing it. <laughs> I, I read between the lines. So he was very excited, Tom? It was very clear that he only found out just before he came in to do media, to to the point that, what was it, he said he got in the car and he had a couple of emails or something from friends and family, and it was like, oh, I, I'm in the Ireland squad, and they came up to do media and had to answer all these questions about it. Because I think it's one of those things that, like, when the squad was announced at whatever time, and we'd find out that Tom O'Toole was doing media in the morning, we're like, oh, you must have found out in the morning, and they're putting him up to talk about it, that's good. But no, completely coincidental, like, he <laughs> found out on the way because they've been training obviously yeah it sounds like he hadn't even been told by Ireland it sounds like he'd found out or from his friends and family rather than yeah. from Ireland yeah and Mar- <laughs> like Marty Moore I was talking to him last night and uh, after having spoken to Tom O'Toole and he was the same he was on the phone to his mum and his mum was like congratulations he, he had no idea either so it's a, probably important to note I suppose that like 
Ireland don't norm Ireland have this every year and they don't normally announce the squad. Mm. So normally who's been there is worked out by who hasn't been at provincial training on the Monday morning. Oh, okay. So it's probably a break with the now accepted norm mm. under Andy Farrell to have that little bit more transparency just around this gathering, I suppose, and who's actually involved rather than everyone having to like sidle up to whichever coach mm. they got on the best with and be like, so who was, uh, who yeah. was here today and who wasn't? You know? I was say, is this the first time that their winter meeting has been publicised in terms of who the, who the players are? I think It's the first time I can remember. Yeah, it's evident that um, they didn't really know what way to approach it given yeah. that the best they could come up with was a stock take. Yeah, which I can, which I completely misread a stock deal whenever yeah, the email yeah, came out. Right. Yeah. Like, why is he the headline yeah. of this? But fair play to them. It's not as bad as uh, Harlequins actually announcing replacements as game changers. Game oh changers. yeah, like like oh, whenever they came, whenever they came on oh, yeah, in the stadium, they were announced as game changers. But Ulsters are just replacements. Like talk about a home field advantage. <laughs> Guys stand on the touchline as replacements, and then the game changers come on did, for did some reason. Just announce them as Ulster replacements. Yeah, so they don't, they don't announce. It's like <laughs> the, har- the Harlequins game changer, game changer coming on, and and the replacements for Ulster. I really enjoy that. Well, they did a good job of changing the game for you, didn't they? <laughs> Um, we got a little bit of sidetrack from Tom O'Toole there, but I would just like to say I do think he his call up is very much deserved. I think he's yeah. had a really good start to the season, and I think that's been somewhat understated because Marty Murray's come back and has also been excellent for Ulster, mm-hmm. and his call up is completely deserved as well. But like you look at the impact that Tom O'Toole has had this season to the extent that Ulster are very capable of wailing O'Toole on at any point in a game and they're not going to have any kind of drop in performance mm. levels from Burr. Yeah, as as evidenced on Friday night, I mean, I, I think it's very appropriate that on uh, on Friday night he was forced to come on the 35th minute because Murr mm. was ill and he had a barnstorming game at Tighthead. I thought he was brilliant. So I think that that's one of the things that a lot of guys think that maybe because they're second choice at their province, they don't have a chance at getting international recognition. I think this is just proof that if you're doing the right things for your province, no matter what position you're in, sort of in terms of the pecking order of your position, you will get recognised at international mm-hmm. level. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things that Ulster will take away from this Ireland. And I know mm-hmm. it's not an actual squad, but yeah. this Ireland squad announcement is that suddenly they've actually built depth mm-hmm. at, a, at a position where they have two internationals in one position. I'm sure they'd love to have it spread out about the squad a bit more, but at the same time, yeah. you know, Ulster can now look and say, effectively, we have two internationals at Tighthead, which is massive. I'm assuming, Johnny, he was, uh, Tom O'Toole was equally as excited about his first Ulster try on Friday night? <laughs> he was, yeah. Um, he was laughing that um, it had taken him a while to get there, but the aforementioned Andy Warwick try, I think he's up well over 100 now on his one try. Um, Callum Black, I think, scored one try in like 130 appearances. So, yeah, he was getting a bit of stick, obviously, from the guys. Um, he was saying that he would have much rather had it be the bonus point try rather than the fifth one, but he was happy to get off the mark anyway. I think he'll be an interesting one in terms of tries to watch because he is so dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a part of his game that you talk about, you know, John Cooney's points of difference and things that will be his point of difference not necessarily try scoring but ball carrying will be his point of difference mm-hmm. as a prop I think he said it himself that 
the scrum is an area that he's had to work on with Dan and an area that he really still needs to work on but just bursting onto the ball mm-hmm. is something that he can do in a way that an awful lot of other tight heads can't and you know you think about Furlong and his passing ability and things like that you know and mm-hmm. um, long gone are the days of the tight heads job being scrummaging and nothing else mm-hmm. yeah bear, bear in mind what is he 23 like he's still got his best yeah, years oh, yeah, a long yeah. way oh, out of absolutely. him absolutely Absolutely. Um, so, a couple of names then who weren't included in the, the Ireland... It's 21, by the way. 21? Yeah, I know. thought he was in that. So, a couple of players that weren't involved in the, the Ireland stock take. Well, there were a few. Most notable, Jordy Murphy. What's going on? It's weird. I think you can probably make an argument for everyone else that's not involved to not be involved, mm-hmm. apart from Jordy Murphy. And we don't believe he's injured. In fact, he's not injured. So it's a strange one. Obviously, his contract is up at the end of the year. I don't like the way you're going on this. Uh, this. This is just me being honest. I don't think you can make a case that he's not in the form 45 players in Ireland. And he's 20. When it's somebody who was called up and played at the World Cup. Yeah. Albeit a few minutes. But he played at the World Cup for him to go in the space of a month or two to not be in the 40 minutes. And he's had a couple of really good games yeah. in Europe since he's been back. Yeah. And he's 28. You know, it's not like. Yeah. You know, Rob Carney, say, for example, as brilliant a servant to Irish rugby as Rob Carney is, is 33 and has lost his place to Jordan Larmer. Like, Jordy Murphy's game against Claremont alone should have given him quite a lot of stock in the international mm-hmm. standings. And, I mean, whenever you look at who's in the squad, guys like Will Connors and Caelan Doris, both cracking players, both with really bright futures, both will play for Ireland at some point, I'm sure of that. But are they better than him right now I, I would I would doubt that I mean it's five Leinster back rowers in the 45 when you consider that Dan Levy's not because he's yeah. still injured and Jordy Murphy's in Ulster insane stuff there is a an intriguing hypothesis that this could mean Jordy Murphy is in his last season at Ulster I, w- I wouldn't go that far just yet all I would say was I don't think he can be out on form and he's not injured and he's yet to sign a co- have a contract mm-hmm. for next year confirmed. So genuinely, without we're not trying to say something that we actually know without saying it. No, the, no, this isn't hinting because like yeah. last night I tried to find out if anybody had heard any reasons for his omission, and nobody was coming forward saying, "Oh yeah, he's signed for somebody in France." Yeah, I'm just saying if you were to look at who's not in that squad, mm-hmm. out of everybody not in that squad, he's the only yeah. one that I think doesn't or it doesn't make any sense that he's not in there. So time will tell on that one. The other, potentially the other Ulster player who can feel most aggrieved and not being in it, Luke Marshall, would he deserve to be in there? Yeah, I, th- I thought he actually did deserve to be in there. I was I was actually quite gutted for him because he's had such a good start to the season for Ulster. I mean, you look at some of the games he's played and the amount of minutes he's played as well. Like, um, In fact, I'll, I'll get it here because he's, he's just, especially coming back from injury, you know, it's, it's one of those ones where the amount of injuries that Luke Marshall's had would have ended many other players' careers. They would they would have just said, look, this isn't working for me. I'm going to call it a day. And it just didn't work for me. But Luke Marshall has battled back from injury time after time. And for me, he's having his best season with Ulster at the moment because he's played what is it, every game except one. He started every single one of the games that he's played. He's played every minute in all ten of those games, bar eight. I can't remember what game he was subbed in, but 
He, he's he's played every eighty minutes in nine games, and he's put in a seven out of ten performance every single week, mm-hmm. if not better. That's how good he's been. Um, and for me, I just thought that would be rewarded in a call up to the Ireland squad. I, Especially whenever you've got Stu McCluskey in there, I think the partnership that they've formed, particularly mm-hmm. over the last few weeks, I think has been really good. And again, you talk about the partnerships where you're potentially pairing Cooney with someone as a as a second centre pairing for uh, for the halfbacks. I think you got to be able to think, you know, put McCluskey and Marshall at centre for Ireland, and there's the potential that they could take their Ulster form into into the Ireland setup. So I. I would I would like to hope he's at least gotten a call from Andy Farrell to say, look, you're you're very very close, mm-hmm. and it's just maybe that one percent or something because that's another one for me that I really thought he he would get called up. I think we're probably still a good bit away from saying you know you can transplant the Ulster centre pairing into the Ireland Six Nations Test starting team just because there's so many centres, and I think that's what's mm-hmm. worked against Luke Marshall as well yeah. as he's played, you know. Gary Ringo scored a hat trick at the weekend. Um, you know. Yeah. yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, hard to argue against that. I suppose, obviously, Robert Balakoon was only not there because of his injury problems and, and nothing else, which is still, I'm sure everybody will agree, agree an absolute disgrace. <laughs> uh, and he should be Ireland's uh, not first choice winger. But I th- I someday, think, guys. I think Jack McGrath's a little bit unlucky. I know he's injured. It's a bit of a grey area over what constitutes getting called up if you've got an injury or not, because Johnny Sexton's in there, but he's out until the start of the Six Nations at best. There are a couple other guys here and there who are in it, even though they're not available for, like, Roman Callagher's in there and he's out for a while. So I thought Jack McGrath started the season quite well with Ulster. Mm. And he's been he's been out for a while, but I, I think he's quite unlucky not to at least be mm. down there to, you know, get get to see what, yeah. what's going on, get to be part of the meetings. In the- He's still going to be in the reckoning for the, the Six Nations, you would imagine, providing he's fit and available. Well, at the minute, there's only two loose heads out of the 45, if you're still mm. counting Andy Porter as a tight head. So that's probably why there'd be a bit of surprise, maybe on my part, that, you know, if you're bringing Tom O'Toole down, mm. Ergo Sullivan has probably been having just as good a season as Tom O'Toole. Mm. And right. that's credit to O'Sullivan rather than being disparaging about O'Toole, <laughs> if that makes sense, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you had been betting on who would have been involved you would have mm. bet on the guy that was starting rather than the guy that was yeah, benched you sense. know what I mean yeah yeah. so there we go a few players unlucky eh, not to be in it but um, particularly for O'Sullivan you'd imagine there is a, a future recognition from Ireland in, in some capacity so we'll get a little look at Ulster's festive fixtures here now obviously the Interpros begin on Friday night in Leinster when Ulster go down there and basically we can expect a much changed team and a defeat start with the first half of that um, because the second half I'll be able to wrap up pretty quickly um, first half yeah yeah, I think we're going to see a very changed team Ulster have alluded to that themselves um, I, I don't think it's going to be as changed as you think it would they are going to make changes you know the, the Ireland guys will uh, sit out you know Henderson Herring um, the guys who went to the World Cup a few of the guys called up to the to the stock take squad will be sitting out as well um, but you, you'll have a few guys probably playing Tom O'Toole looks like he'll be playing given he, he was up to a media yesterday but then you know 
we were talking about this, Johnny and I were talking about this in the airport on the way home. How how many changes can Ulster theoretically make without going too far deep in, into the squad? You know, you can make 15 changes if you want, but you're suddenly throwing guys into a very pressurised environment down in the RDS against the best side in European club rugby. You know, the, there's a time and a place for playing these guys. And bear in mind that Ulster are, you know, on a good run. As much as I talked earlier about momentum translating into something else, at the same time, you don't want to throw another Cheetah-style hammering into the mix there. Mm-hmm. You want to at least come away similar to the Munster game where you were going down in hope rather than expectation and coming away with something. If Ulster could have another result like that, I think they'd take it in a heartbeat. So I don't think they're going to go down completely changed. They will definitely have changes, and smartly so, because whenever you've got two home games coming up against Connacht, who you should be beating at home, and Munster, who they really want to get revenge on for beating them down in Toman Park whenever they could have taken a result away from there, I think, yeah, this is the one that you kind of cast off to the side and mm-hmm. say that our history and the RDS is not good and we're coming up against the best team in Europe, so let's send down a much-changed team and focus on our two home games. Mm-hmm. So, with the whole IRFU management scheme and all that, Ulster have to you know, manage their resources in such a way that this is the game that will fall by the wayside. So yeah, I, I would expect them to not be coming away from this weekend with a win, but it's a chance to look at some of these young guys because as we've heard from within the squad, you know, there are a lot of young guys in this team who are feeling this winning energy. They're feeling... Mm-hmm good about being part of the team and they want to be part of it too you know nobody wants to be sitting on the sidelines while a team is winning because you feel like everything's passing you by Mm -hmm. so give guys like Angus Kernan, Dave O'Connor I was going to say Matty Ray but he's been playing practically most of the season so Mm -hmm. but you know bring these guys in give them a chance to impress Angus Curtis that's that's another one I was going to bring in and let them have a go tell them go out give it all you got Result doesn't matter if we can come away with something great, but this is a chance for guys to impress. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Adam uh, says the the next two games are at home: Connaught on the twenty seventh, Munster on the third of these three games. What, in terms of a, a points return, will constitute success? Eight. So two non-bonus point wins. It's yeah, fine. I mean, if you look at sort of the landscape, so the World Cup players have to be given two weeks off as far as I can tell they're not even here this week so mm-hmm. that's how far away they are from playing in this game um, the other guy the other frontliners are still here mm-hmm. but are highly unlikely to be involved in this one so in this one you'll have a huge amount of changes probably involving guys but involving guys that just probably need a game you know the likes of Craig Gilroy the guy likes mm-hmm. of uh, Matt Fadis if I was to tip somebody who might make a debut I don't think there'll be like I don't think there'll be a heck of a lot of debuts. If I was to tip somebody, I would say like Stuart Moore maybe makes his debut or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. But really, it's just you can rotate enough to still send down a relatively experienced team. The middle game then would shape up to be the one where you play the same team that you played against Scarlets, which is your first team minus Jordy Murphy, Ian Henderson, and Jacob Starto. Mm-hmm. And then you have the monster game, which should be the full strength one. Mm-hmm. On the basis of that, 
on the basis of the fact that Connacht should also be missing the likes of Bondiaki whenever yeah. they come up here. You should win those two games. Mm-hmm. I think. And but eight points is probably a good return, yeah. given that you know Leinster haven't really. lost since the Heineken Cup final last mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. and we've seen that you know their reserve team, if you like. You know, their 15 changes team mm-hmm. beat Glasgow the last time they played in yeah. Glasgow. So I think two wins would be good. And I think yeah. two wins probably keeps that buffer that you want to the um, to the Cheetahs mm-hmm. and probably to Glasgow as well. He imagine, like, you would imagine Glasgow will split those Edinburgh games probably. Yeah. If, so, you t- if you take anything more than eight points, it is a bonus. Yeah. Like Because if they were to come away with anything from the RDS this week, I think they'd be skipping and jumping all the way back up mm-hmm. the M1. Yeah, no, so like when they're already four points ahead of the Cheetahs, ten points ahead of Glasgow, that would be, you'd you'd accept no, no bonus points and a couple of wins would, would be delightful. So time will tell over the, the next few weeks um, how much Dan McFarland listens to the podcast and listens to your point of view and uh, takes it on board. And <laughs> I think I can tell you now that the answer to both is neither. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd just like to point out, after advocating that Kieran Treadwell and Matt Faddis start at the stoop on last mm-hmm. week's podcast... That happened. Yeah, (laughs) might have taken it on board. Who knows? So that's pretty much us for this week. But we will be back next week for our special festive edition. Uh, There's not really much special about it. It's just us, normal episode. But it will be before Christmas, so you can wear a Christmas jumper when you're listening to it if you want. I was going to wear a Santa hat. Well, we can do that. I want to take a picture. But for this week, from Jonathan Bradley. Cheers. Thank you very much. Adam McAndrew. Cheers, guys. And myself, Gareth Hanna. Thanks for listening.